I'm Phil Rickaby, and I've been a writer and performer for almost 30 years. But I've realized that I don't really know as much as I should about the theater scene outside of my particular Toronto bubble. Now, I'm on a quest to learn as much as I can about the theater scene across Canada. So join me as I talk with mainstream theater creators you may have heard of, and indie artists you really should know, as we find out just what it takes to be stage-worthy. If you value the work that I do on Stageworthy, please consider leaving a donation either as a one-time thing or on a recurring monthly basis. Stageworthy is created entirely by me, and I give it to you free of charge with no advertising or other sponsored messages. Your continuing support helps me to cover the cost of producing and distributing the show. Just four people donating $5 a month would help me cover the cost of podcast hosting alone. Help me continue to bring you this podcast. You can find a link to donate in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast app or at the website at stageworthy.ca. Now, on to the show. There's been a topic that has dominated the theater scene in Canada for the last 10 years or more. And that's the question of whether audiences are disappearing. In a lot of ways, this question has become even more important since COVID. I've seen breathless articles about how theater hasn't bounced back since we started opening things back up and how theater needs to drastically change if it's going to survive. But none of these statements are new. Long before the questions of why the audiences are disappearing had entered the regular theater discourse, a friend of mine who was not a regular theater goer referred to it as a dead art form. So these are questions that need to be grappled with, and I've been thinking about them for quite a while. But I am just one person, and these are questions that need more than one brain. So I asked some really smart indie theater artists to join me to have a conversation about it. Joining me are Red Sandcastle's Adriana Prosser, Bygone Theater's Emily Dix, playwright Stephen Neer, and dancer and performer Laura Pigeonet. Here's that conversation. I want to welcome you all. Thank you all for joining me. Adriana, Emily, Stephen, and Laura. I wanted to have this conversation about audiences this evening. And the reason I wanted to have this conversation is for years now, I've been hearing an ongoing conversation about the fact that audiences are disappearing, that the audiences are going away. And I remember a number of years ago, there was a big conversation that was held during, during a festival. And we had this big conversation and it was a bunch of people in a room talking about what to do about the fact that audience were disappearing. And essentially, when we got to the end, the answer was audiences are disappearing. And that's was essentially as far as we got. And I want to start with a question. And you're all uh, coming from different places. Adriana, uh, you're the general manager of the Red Sandcastle. Emily, you're the artistic executive director of Bygone Theater. Stephen, you're a co-founder of, of Same Boat Theater. Laura, you're a playwright, performer, dancer, aerialist. You all have come from different places as far as as the, this conversation goes. But I'm wondering, as far as you are seeing, is the idea that audiences are disappearing, is that a reality in your experience or is that a myth that, that, that you have not quite seen? Or is that sort of the wrong starting place? Emily? I think it's a little tricky to say, given that I, I know with my company, we've just had in November, December, our first live show back is COVID. And we've got another one coming up uh, shortly. Um, so we actually found we had uh, better ticket sales for that than we have for any of our other shows, but we were in a much bigger venue. Uh, we were at Hearth House um, and it was, it was just a bigger show overall. Um, I know talking to Hardhouse, 
it was much lower ticket sales than they're used to getting. So I would suspect that, yes, overall, and I know just sure all different companies that they're they're definitely having trouble selling ticket. But I think it also depends on what and where you're doing things. No, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Adriana, I'm curious what you've noticed over the last year or so at the Red Sandcastle. I know each show has it is is its own animal and uh, audiences. They have to do their own promotion, that sort of thing. Have you noticed anything about about uh, audiences, whether they're they're coming back, whether they're they're there or not? Well, because they're rentals, I'm not seeing everybody's numbers. But our resident theater company and I'm artistic producer of Eldridge Theater, so I can talk about our numbers. Um, we're seeing a strong climb, and I think that's actually in due part to our COVID uh, protocols and policy at Sandcastle. It builds confidence that we have a mask mandate. The response that we've had to our mask mandate has been so very strong that we've had emails, DMs, and in-person uh, chatter about, you know, I'm not going to see theater, but because you have a mask mandate, I'm coming to see your show. Um, and in so much that even our numbers, I tried a pop-up market just this past weekend, which Ringcastle had never done before. And they also were just really ecstatic that I put wear a mask on the poster and that all of the vendors were wearing masks. They felt really welcomed and really safe. And um, it's only been maybe maybe 5% of a backlash of of. Um, pushback against the mask mandate, but we, uh, Eldritch suppl supplies them for free at the door. If you forget, we remind you at all of the, the ticketing levels of like where the audience actually participates, the patrons actually participate in the buying journey. Um, and yeah, I think that that's actually really helping in that we have also explored digital while we were in COVID. So I don't know if anybody else has has explored that as well as an alternative. And we're trying our darndest to find funding and supports for continuing our digital um, offerings, because I think the accessibility as well as finding more audiences that are perhaps remote as well as um, uh, making it more accessible would actually be a really good boon to any theater. Mm. Stephen, Laura, do you have any 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 thoughts on this this initial starting point? Yeah, um, I mean, I was I'm I'm sort of uh, echoing what uh, Emily said. Um, same boat. I mean, this past this past summer at the Hamilton Fringe was our was our first show live show back. Um, you know, since pandemic shutdown. Um, and I mean, we we had one of the more. I mean, we we were one of the uh, award winners of the of the of the festival. So we had one of the one of the the better performing venues but i mean that said we were also a bring your own venue so i didn't think we were going to do that well at all like we only had 50 seats in our house and and towards the end of our run like halfway through our run we we ended up selling selling out which was a bit of a surprise for me um and sort of going off of what what i'd heard from the hamilton fringe itself they they i mean ticketed uh, brought in like just uh, like over seventy five thousand dollars in terms of ticket revenue which you know was was um, about 10,000, over 10,000, um, audiences. So my, my understanding of, of the Hamilton fringe, at least was that, that, um, ticket sales did really, really well. Um, the only times that I ever heard of, uh, the, of, of shows actually being canceled. I mean, that this was one thing that I did see is that, you know, we had, there were several shows that, that had cancellations, all were due to illnesses. Um, like all, all were pretty much due to, to, you know, sh performers catching COVID at the, the last minute and then having to shut down their show. I mean, one, one show in particular, um, uh, game show, the musical, I believe, which was much touted, um, to, uh, be at the Hamilton fringe had to completely shutter their run because they, because of an illness. Um, so I, I guess I, I have a bit of a question because I, I was sort of trying to prep for this discussion to see really how much how much of an audience loss um, we've been looking at um, and it's it's yeah it's difficult to say I, I would say uh, just echoing again what Emily said it's it seems like a complex question um, because I from my view of it I get the feeling that although the uptick is is um, 
maybe isn't as isn't as big. Um, I also I do get the impression that that people are somewhat eager to get back into seeing something live and in person and 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 speaking to to what a um, uh, Adriana said. Um, if like I, I I like when I the last time I I when I went to see friend shows I was in there with a mask. Other people were in there with masks. It was no big thing. Um, uh, I actually was more comfortable than I thought I would be. So I, I, um, I, 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 that was, I think my big hesitancy in terms of how, how much are people, how comfortable our audience is going to be in returning to the theater. Um, but it, but I, I feel like because, you know, people who go in who want to wear masks are wearing masks, um, then, then maybe that's uh, maybe that's a buffer or something. But I, I really think maybe there's something to this notion that that people want to see want to see shows again, want to want to see something on an alternative at least to to something uh, on their streaming. But admittedly, I haven't been able to do as much of a deep dive into the research as as I as I could. But just uh, reading some articles by um, J. Kelly Nestruck, it seems that tr- some at least some Toronto theaters are are doing quite well. That's that's true, uh, Laura. You toured a show through the Fringe across Canada this this uh, this past summer, and um, I'm wondering what you may have noticed. Uh, did you notice uh, uh, how were your audiences? Did you notice other people complaining about audiences at the fringes you were at? What was the general feel of the of the Fringe circuit this year, as far as you could tell? It it was a little all over the map, really, audience wise. I think. For various reasons, for example, Toronto, it was in July when we had that little like sudden burst of COVID, uh, one of many. But there was a burst that took out a couple of casts right at the top of the of everyone's run. And I think that made people nervous. And we had like a collective consciousness of like, whoop, and everyone kind of went, oh, maybe, you know what, I'll just catch you next year. There, there was no talk leading up to Fringe, like of anything kind of being awry and then it just kind of surprised us as if you know we could be surprised but we were the everyone and i think there was a like and everyone just kind of went you know what I'll, I'll i'll catch i'll catch you back in later now's not the time right now then maybe two weeks later i go to saskatoon no discussion of covid not a problem for them there mm. and that was so that element had been removed but in Saskatoon, as in an effort to support um, local artists, the media and the fringe itself were not reviewing or interviewing or reviewing or any kind of doing any kind of media for um, for uh, artists who weren't local. And so that hit a strange, that was a big bomb for everyone who was touring through Saskatoon that year who, you know, Saskatoon has always been touted as like a place to go. It, it's a stop to on the fringe circuit. And th- they they kind of stepped in it where, of course, on one hand, you're like, yes, support local, but the, a, a better balance could have been achieved. We had shows where three ticket sales were the pre-show, were the pre- yeah, th- that was our pre-show sales, like three. And, and artists who two weeks later went on to sell out their full runs in Edmonton, had five to 10 people in their shows. And we're all leaving our shows distraught. We were all, you know, looking to each other like, hey, your number's bad. My numbers are so bad. And it took a while to admit it to each other because we thought it was us. And it and it and it really was it, it really was just a, a product, a negative product of this um real uh, effort to support the local who did a great job they, their ticket sales were great and also the artists did their absolute best to support our shows come to our shows talk about it on their social media it, i i couldn't be more grateful for that um so that's kind of like um i think that was an attempt to fix a low audience situation that had a an adverse effect for others and then the rest of the fringes you know victoria i think had a very um, a typical uh, run. I went in Nanaimo was, it's a boutique festival, so that was very cute, but also well attended. You know, there were very few shows that were really, really struggling. And uh, Kelowna being so, so new, 
was a struggle, but I think that's a, a characteristic of the Kelowna locals just not really being embedded in uh, fringe culture. But it really was all over the map, and I couldn't uh, I couldn't really set an expectation for any of that, although I did have quite high expectations for Saskatoon because of what I had heard about it. Um, and then was quite disappointed. Of course, they were open to the feedback from everyone, and I think we all gave it. <laughs> and hopefully... That's a reconsideration, but I, I, I don't think in the future that that would be a problem. I think it was really a response to COVID and this problem of trying to get audiences. What can, what can we do? How can we mm-hmm. narrow their focus? Yeah. It's a really difficult one. I mean, thinking about, about the media, uh, just thinking about the, the, this past fringe, um, uh, where it was, a, there was a question of where, where are the media outlets that will review shows? Um, it's, it's hard enough to get the word out. Uh, uh, without media, and there was su- there's such a in Toronto a, a wasteland of, of 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 reviewers of independent theater, um, especially now that now that Now Magazine is under new ownership that doesn't seem to give a shit about the arts any longer. Fortunately, Glenn Sumi is is reviewing on his own, um, but uh, you know people like, like Nestruck, Kelly Nestruck doesn't really seem to do a whole lot of indie reviewing. Um, unless he, I don't know, I don't know what his criteria is. Uh, but aside from that, um, we have these theaters of the large to mid size, which, which sort of survive on, on subscriptions and your typical subscription, uh, subscriber, your typical subscriber is older, is elderly. Um, I can remember working at uh, the Ed Mervis theater in Toronto a couple of years ago and, uh, the subscriber, uh, series performances were always um, uh, uh, quite full of an an older audience, and if your audience, if you're relying on those subscribers to be able to to fill seats, to be able to to help to subsidize your show, um, it should be a. I would think it's a concern if if your if your subscriber base is quite old. But I don't see a whole lot of maybe I'm maybe I'm mistaken, but maybe not seeing a whole lot of effort in terms of of trying to. Uh, uh, appeal to a younger audience, um, at least at least this time. Stephen, yeah, that's that's a good point. I'm glad you raised that. I was just uh, reading an article on on YPT and and their their sort of struggles that they're encountering in trying to get the younger their younger audiences in the door, right? And and I mean that's crucial because you know younger young theater audiences, you know, are are the ones who grow up to become theater artists and lifelong lifelong audiences of theater so if you're if you're losing that if you're losing that audience base then then that that does spell um bad things for the future um and i i don't know i that is something i i think i would be concerned about because i mean i i talk about this all the time with um with people in my in my playwriting classes about you know the business of playwriting and and sort of the the struggles you know the fact that there are there are just so many so many other places for people to to get their entertainment or get, get their their fit their distraction or what have you these days um i mean i i think i mean we always had streaming services but i think obviously in the early days of the pandemic it it you know where else what else were you going to do but you know stay, stay at home and watching streaming services and then out of the the pandemic the sort of notion of you know netflix and chill has become you know, this buzzword of like, I don't feel like going out. I just, you know, have, you know, endless, endless entertainment opportunities at my fingertips. And I think that is, that's a huge concern. Um, uh, because, you know, getting people out to the theater, you know, you're not just getting them out to see theater. You have to, you know, it, it's the notion of what is an evening of theater, right? Is it, is it, it, you know, getting people to part with their money? Is it, you know, do you have to have an intermission built in? So it, you know, buy them drinks. So I think that for me raises a lot of questions of does, does an evening of theater or does a theater experience need to change in some way so that it will appeal to a younger demographic? Do shows have to be shorter? Do shows take place earlier? Right. Um, you know, admission prices, things like that, um, where you move away from the subscription the, sub- the s- subscription model. Um, so 
I don't know. It, it, I think those are, but I think those are, those are definitely challenging and difficult questions that all artists are, are having to wrestle with now. So many things. So, uh, we're trying a lot of things and riffing off of what Stephen was saying. Um, we're trying to listen in real time. Uh, social media really grants us that opportunity to listen in real time with, uh, with comments, with DMs and with replying to newsletters. Like I can get an instant reply. Uh, so much so that um, I, uh, Eric Wolf, um, the artistic director at Eldritch and also management at Red Sand Castle, we, we tete-a-tete, we have something called the morning meetings are every day. And it's sometimes it's five minutes and sometimes it's 50 minutes. And it really is us observing what's happening on social and then what's happening from newsletters and to patron interactions. And from all of that, we actually had the brain baby of not subscriptions because again, this this antiquated idea of let's plan out the next six to eight months are always going to come on the last Thursday. Life doesn't work like that anymore. Um, did it ever? Um, so <laughs> the the idea of Netflix and chill and things being on demand, we're up against that, yes. But there is the idea, again, that uh, the magic of theater, the magic of community, the magic of live. Um, but we didn't want to go to that antiquated model. So we decided to go with memberships and that idea of being a member, an inner sanctum member of Eldridge and that you are inner circle, you are important to us and you have put your money where your mouth is to say, Eldritch is important to you. And so that membership fee for the season, a season membership is going to get you perks and discounts and, and insider stuff. And I actually leveraged that insider. Uh, so it's 33 people at this point out of about um, a thousand um, people who are in our subscribers and Facebook groups. So people who are outside of just our followers, um, people who are a little bit engaged. Um, but then this other tier of 33 people being like, no, I will pay money dollars to be considered a member. I actually asked them um, after about a month or so uh, of just getting just getting discounts. They get, they get um, a membership fee discount for their tickets for as many as they would like to buy. Please bring your friends, bring your enemies, bring your frenemies. Um, and I asked them point blank. I'm like, what do you want? Because you are the people that we make this art for and with. And now that you've invested in Eldridge, you have a say. So here's what I'm thinking. And so it's not just a discussion between Eric and I. It's now a discussion between Eric and I and these patrons who have raised their hand and said, you know what, this is important to me. And I would like to see you thrive. I would like to see you succeed um, because I want to witness that. I want to be a part of that, right? It's, um, it is a beloved patron level. And so I asked them and that's where I got the idea of my haunted hig um, of like being inside and like, how can we pass the time in winter? Because winter sucks. I mean, yes, we're Canadian and we all understand snowsuits, but like, what are we doing to pass the time for six to eight months? And so they gave me feedback and then I listened to what they wanted and I delivered. And that's why we did the market. Uh, that's why I have some more programming up my sleeve that's coming out up until May to try and pass the the cold winter months. And so the idea of the subscriber for us has evolved. Like we listen to what we used to do and then we're listening in real time and we're trying to evolve and amalgamate and just kind of squish all these things together into something that people will want. Yeah. And I hope they do. Yeah. Yeah. Emily. Yeah, uh, both Adrian and Stephen sort of touched on this, but um, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of people sort of panicked and thought that the reaction to not be able to do live theater was, well, let's still do that, but we'll just film it and we'll watch it from home. And I hear a lot of the time um, artists com comparing us to something like Netflix or going to the movies. And I, I don't think that's really a very accurate comparison. Um, because I think the thing, and Adriana mentioned this, that people are really looking for is the experience, right? So I think we're really competing more with things, even like the immersive Van Gogh and those sort of things that don't really have much of a story. That show is doing so well. I have a friend who started off as an usher with that, and now he's very high up. They make millions, and they're set up all over the place, and there's nothing to it. They're replaced. 
it's kind of ridiculous, but people want to be able to go out and do a thing and feel like they are in some way interacting, even if that's a very minor interaction, like literally having a projection over top of you. Um, I, I watched so many small companies put a lot of time and money into making plays that then they badly sold and couldn't sell tickets for. And I think some of us thought maybe that could work because Stratford put up stuff that was very popular. But Stratford, uh, it, we won't even compare. Yeah, not comparing the quality of the shows, but the quality of the video, you, you know, that's six figures easily to to shoot one show. And, and none of us could do that. So with Bygone, we we didn't do anything for a couple of years. We instead put all of our focus onto building up our stuff um, to become a charity and focused on um, market research and things and um, building up our different, um, like our diversity program and our sustainability and everything. And it's it's helped a lot with starting this year. But uh, yeah, I think I think we need to try and ask ourselves, what is the audience actually getting out of going to theater? And I know, you know, you make a show and you put your heart and soul into it and you blood, sweat and tears and you think it's great and everyone wants to see it because they'll just know it's as great as you know it is. But really, like, you know, it's it's not, um, not, there's, there's so many different shows out there and just because you think it's important doesn't mean it's going to speak with people. And to drag them out of their homes, especially in the winter, uh, to go to a place where it's, it's great, you have a mask mandate that's working. I have yet to be anywhere where that's been the case. Either there's no masks or there are and there's people arguing about them. And it just, I saw that a lot, a lot at the fringe this past year. Um, so you need there to be another step to that, I think. Um, I was just, uh, I building upon what um, Adriana was saying about about the, the different mod, getting audience feedback and, and playing around with different models, it, it kind of speaks to me how, again, like how, how do we, how do we, how do we use a theater in a different way or how do we sort of refocus um, what a theater can be in a community, right? Like I, I think what, 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 El, what, what Eldritch, Eldritch recently did with the, um, or, or what Red Sandcastle did with the, uh, the sort of the, the, the maker's space or the, um, uh, it, it was is really cool, or what the theater center has been for a number of years now, essentially a coffee shop and 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 community center. I mean, it it's it's more work certainly. Um, I know, uh, but I know it's something that a number of other theaters are trying. Um, uh, Mary Frances Moore, the new artistic director in uh, Theater Aquarius in Hamilton, um, has is sort of been trying since she she just took the reins of Aquarius like this past year. Is, is now trying to figure out, okay, how can I refocus or, or reorient the space, which has seemed for so long to be sort of this sacred cow of, you know, it's not, it, it's never accessible except on a theater night. And, you know, she's like, you know what, if Stephen, if you want to come in with your laptop and like sit in the, the cavernous lobby and like work, um, please do by all means. Um, she's just bought like Aquarius just bought a space across the street that used to be a, a, a school a community center school and she's going to be turn, trying to turn it into a black box but it's also there's a community center aspect to it so i think that's hopefully i think those types of steps to kind of turn theaters like physical bricks and mortars theater into something more than just a theater is a really good first step um the other thing though that i, that I wonder about with regards to um you you mentioned that at the top still that um there was a sense that you know, we were losing audiences already before the pandemic. And I'm, I'm wondering about, about the reason for that perhaps being sort of a leftover from, uh, the other thing that, that, um, took a change during the pandemic, which is a lot of artistic leadership in these big theaters, um, went through a complete overhaul, um, uh, like during the pandemic. I mean, I just, I just said Aquarius, like, uh, Aquarius was being run by an artistic team, which was basically, um, you know, left during the pandemic. Also, there was a bit of a scandal there. Um, Tarragon, uh, switched hands, factory switched hands. I believe the Grand Theater in London also switched hands. YPT has new leadership, 
uh, and Soul Pepper changed just before the pandemic. So I wonder if I wonder if we'll see more audiences come into the theater or re return to the theater as we see new artistic leadership in place, as we see new artistic leaders kind of bringing in different artists, right? A different crop of artists who who perhaps see theater differently or want to make different th different kinds of theater. That's something I'm really curious about personally. I think that's a hugely important thing to consider because I do think that um, perhaps, and and this might not be a popular thing to say, but perhaps some of the, the disappearing audience may have been caused by programming choices or advertising choices. I absolutely I agree. I was on the subway, just to give an example, I was on the subway a little while ago and there was a poster for, just to call them out, the, the Soul Pepper season. It didn't tell me anything about any of the shows. It just had like a, a back, uh, like a like simple text saying the name of the show. And essentially it was like, hey, here's some things. And nothing about it was like, here's why you might be excited about this show. It was just, here are some titles that might not mean anything to you unless you are one of our subscribers or a regular theater goer. And if we rely on the regular theater goer, we're not likely to, to see uh, a show. So much to riff on. But um, going back to what Emily was saying is that um, the mask mandates and welcoming in a post-lockdown, not post-COVID world, that not only um, are we exploring, like we have a, a, a strict mask mandate, but other, other theaters are actually exploring middle ground. And I actually respect that. Um, I actually went to my very first show recently outside of Sandcastle for the first time in three years um, at Crow's because they had a mask mandated Tuesday. And it was just Tuesday nights that they were getting a mask mandate. And guess what? It was full. And everybody was happy to wear a mask because they knew that that was their designated day which I thought was a really lovely vibe. And I was so happy to see some uh, some theater down the street and support um, the Leslieville Theater District. Uh, so, so being those hybrids and again, listening to what people are experiencing and trying to figure out ways to welcome people. Um, so that again, like, like, like everyone was saying, like going out and having uh, these poor ushers who are not making a lot of money who have to act as bouncers and like, health safety officers it's not fair um so those kinds of things are really great and then uh riffing off what um what phil and stephen were talking about in this 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 do i dare be dramatic and say renaissance but like there has been a lot of stuff going on in southern ontario um not just changing hands but lots of scandals um and things that have forced change um and I think we're in a very transitory time right now, as as Stephen uh, remarked. The ideas of what's coming next next five years, I think right now there's a lot of skating and a lot of finding footing and growing with um, new artistic mandates and visions and people. Uh, so I think we're in a bit of a hold our breath right now. Um, and then as well, what Joel was saying about that thing on the TTC, I have so many thoughts. Um, that um, you, I actually made a comment on Twitter and uh, because Glenn Sumi was just like, you know, I'd really like to see more theater posters like this on the subway. And I just made a polite comment to be like, you know that that thing costs anywhere from ten to $20,000 for that poster. And he went, excuse me, what now? So that's why you don't see a lot of indie theater um, in public spaces because they have been regulated by the city bylaws and you will not see a Red Sand Castle Theatre poster on the TC because we cannot afford it. Um, so that's why we rely heavily on social media and algorithms and SEO um, because it is much more accessible um, except, you know, Zuckerberg and, and all of his henchmen are making it a little bit less accessible every year because it becomes more and more expensive. But yeah, that is a lot of thoughts to digest, but thank you. Yeah, it's a really, I mean, advertising on the subway, I, I did it once. I was only able to afford, and this is like 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 maybe 20 or more, let's not, let's not get into specifics about how old I am. On the subway, we were only, only able to afford uh, two posters about like maybe just, just a, like a regular poster set, like small poster. Um, and those uh, in the end for the time that we had them uh, cost us, those two cost us like $5,000, which, and that was like in the 90s prices. 
um, which was a lot then. So like that kind of advertising is 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 out of range. Physical world advertising is often out of range for a lot of indie theater companies. Oh, go ahead, Laura. Uh, to your point, Phil, like if I see one more poster for Mamma Mia, I'm going to lose my G dang mind. I'm going to lose it. Who, who, who are we, who are we doing this for? Um, and to Stephen's point about this, there's, there has been a jumbling. I, I, there's, and there's aspects of it that even uh, spaces have closed before the pandemic, during and after, but spaces like the Laura Rosington Theater or Dance Makers, places where if people had been going for a long time or performing there or whatever, um, once they're out of the habit, once they're once their space closes, it's really difficult to form new habits, to find new community and to uh, f- find that place that you want to go to that you like, you know, you like their programming or to follow a certain artist to a new place. We there that mass like jumble of everything. I certainly think resulted in people going ah, OK, well, I'll take a break. And then we all know what happens when you take a break. You say, I'm going to skip the gym one time and then you never go back and it just i think it takes a minute and obviously the covid is compounding and then this uh recession non-recession that we're going through here is compounding everything is like is anything suggesting to us that uh, adrian I, lo- I love your um phrasing of the renaissance and i think I-, I agree with you there but they're so that we're so at the early stages of like what what is prompting individuals to renaissance what is there what it because i'm feeling day by day going oh my god oh my gosh like i better not leave the house because if i get strep throat i can't go to the doctor because i can't get that you know what i mean it's almost like the silliest things um keeping keeping us all uh, away and we need a powerful movement to get everybody back and into new kind of patterns and um a, a kind of excitement that if we're all working towards it, will be very, very fun. But I think what your listeners and you, Phil, had noticed is like, where where did everybody go? And how did we all know to leave at the same time? So how do we all know to come back? I think that coming back is the harder point. But I think the reason why people um, uh, felt like they wanted to, that, that they left, was that the programming wasn't speaking to them. People vote with their feet. Um, if people don't like the movies that you're showing, they don't go to the movie theater. If people don't like the theater that you're presenting, they don't go to it. But you, even if the show is great, you have to express that. And you have to express that through an exciting poster, through exciting images, through the media, which is getting harder and harder to access. But also you need uh, a kick-ass trailer, which is really hard. I've seen so many really bad theater trailers that just don't make me want to see the show. We, we, it's, it, I think we, the idea is people, the people who are coming back, they are coming back for an experience. And people who are going to the theater are looking for an experience and they're not looking for, um, oh, okay, I'm going to sit in this chair and I'm going to see a nice play. And look, look, here's like a drawing room that I'm going to witness things happening in again. Um, they want more. They want that, um, that, that, a uh, Van Gogh effect with all the projections. They want, they want a spectacle. They want to Instagram. They want all of these these things to to excite them and 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 give them something to 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 see and something to talk about. Yeah, I think spectacle is really the right word for it. Um, I find that there's well, Canada loves problem plays. That's what wins all the awards. That's what the big companies put on. Um, they're not necessarily happy things to watch. They're almost never happy things to watch. Maybe it's something that uh, speaks to you. And so there's something sort of therapeutic through that, or you learn something. Uh, there's reasons to put them on. There's reasons to see them. But they're not entertaining and fun the way musical is, which is why if you can put on just about any musical, and unless it's gone awful, you're going to sell tickets, uh, especially if it's something that's an older one that people have heard of. And they think, oh yeah, Music Man, I can take my kids and my grandmother to it, it's fine. Um, so I think that's one thing that we see in Toronto, especially with programming, because you look anywhere else in Ontario, and you'll see they put on the same sort of shows over and over. And I know that is frustrating to artists who want to do something new. But 
there's a reason they do that. That's what sells because the people who have the most disposable income are older than all of us here. <laughs> um, they tend to be middle class, usually white people um, that have like a nine to five job and then can go and see these things in the evening. So I think if we're putting on shows that are not what's likely to attract those people, then you need to look at what those audiences can actually do. And a lot of the time, they can't pay anywhere near enough to actually support these shows. Um, you know, there's lots of talk of trying to get into new um, new communities and people that don't historically go and see theater. Maybe part of it is that they're not interested. I'm sure a big part of it is not having money. I work in theater and I, I don't see anywhere near as much of it as, that I, as I'd like to. Um, I usually end up only going and seeing shows with people I know in it because I can't possibly uh, keep up. Um, and two, been depressing few years. Like since 2016, honest to God, I remember I was working at Tarragon and I remember sitting in the office two weeks before the U.S. election and being like, oh, I feel really anxious. And as we were talking about that and the woman I was working with was like, well, there's no way he's going to win. I'm like, I don't know. Because we just had the whole grabber by the pussy thing. And when that didn't get him kicked out, I thought, ooh, he might actually win. And that tightness has not gone away. It literally hasn't. Um, and yeah, like every day I go and scroll through the news and it's just awful things local and around the world and and with women's rights and everything. It's, it's horrific. So I am not in the mood to go and watch a depressing play about how terrible life is for whatever person or group of people because that's what i'm seeing all the time anyway what we've been watching at home is not even new stuff we've been, right now we're watching um arrested development again and that's a thing that people with anxiety especially tend to do is go back and re-watch things they already know the ending to because there's there's no stress to it and i think there's a lot of people that's why you see netflix bringing back you know, older shows, we all want to watch the stuff either from when we were kids or teenagers or just something that is safe and easy and uh, is not going to make us question anything. Um, and that's not the type of theater that is put on in Toronto except by the Mervishes. Yeah. Laura. Uh, exactly to your point that um, what we could use is some levity and some just go to the show. And um, for people who are who are independent producers or small scale uh, productions, you need grants. You need grants for those things. You need grants to get anything off the ground. And you know what they're not going to give you money for? Fun shit just to do. You can't write into a grant. What is the purpose of this production? Fun. We're going to have fun. We're going to be on roller skates. So we're going to sing some songs. And they're like, no, no. And that's too bad because you just you get caught up because my show let's be honest is like so silly it's got certainly some things in it that are deep and you know steeped in queer culture and the arc of whatever blah, blah, blah. but that's not what people are going for they're going to laugh and and i cannot cannot get any funding for it despite a history of success of doing this show self-produced over and over and over again there's just no room for funding of things that aren't earthy and difficult. And while there's so much room for it, Emily's point is, we can't handle it. The audiences can't handle it. They can't. We are watching Friends for the 55th time because we can't handle and then maybe going to one deep show a year and going, that was great. And then not going back. And it's, it's, I think that fun that 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 it's cyclical, and then the things that are fun is Mamma Mia, and it's like, okay, is there not a balance between giving us Mamma Mia one more time and showing us something new that's also comedic? It it's and I don't know how to influence the powers that be to that effect. You know, it's it's it feels like a dead end. I mean, I I don't know how you how you do uh, affect those powers that be. Uh, one of the things that I um, have been just thinking of is the fact that the shows that have stuck with me over the years, the shows that I still think about uh, days later, weeks later, even months later, 
are the shows where um, I felt uh, there was a sense of awe, a moment of awe in the show. There was a moment where uh, I felt just taken away. It and it, it can be simple, but it's like this moment of magic that happened, uh, and I've seen it in 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 a few shows. And but they're always the shows that that stuck with me. Um, and I think that that you know, like Emily was saying, Canada, we love our problem shows. We love our problem plays. Um, but again, we have to, there's that fine line because people will say we can't give the audience what they want. We give them what they need. But then of course, if you're not giving them what they want, like why are they buying your tickets? Steven? Yeah, it's just, this is uh, I wanted to pick up on that thread. Um, something I hadn't really thought of before, but I actually posted something on my social media because I was thinking a lot about trauma about the fact that we've been we've come out of um you know you're right like we've we've come out of an electoral an electoral trauma um you know in 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 the states and then up here as well and then of course the the covid trauma and 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 yet I I was thinking to myself why is the biggest show on TV right now um freaking last of us on Netflix I guess um, you know, which, you know, it's, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's apocalyptic, like it's post-apocalyptic dystopian, right? And, and, you know, I'm just now reading all these news, like, could it actually happen? Like, could people actually get, you know, infected by fungus and stuff? And, and I, I, I post, I said, you know, I, I'm, I'm sure it's a great show. And, you know, a lot of people have talked about this one episode that is, that has, you know, that that is poetic in its beauty and 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 sort of wrestling with grief. But a part of me is like, I can't, I can't watch it. I can't take it because I feel like I've lived through that. And so, but at the same time, I, it, this is also something I'm wrestling with. That as as artists, as a writer, especially in theater, like part of what you're right, what what we what we're what we need to try and do is create theater that wrestles with these difficult topics because good art a lot of time or not good art but but a lot of you're right so a lot of the, the the work that 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 has stayed with me is is art that 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 challenges that is difficult that that is is not easily digestible and i guess i wonder at the same time as i watch all these people talking about how how awesome um a dystopian show is on netflix uh, at the same time, I wonder how, like, what, how, how does, how, uh, how is the, the people who are coming out of this pandemic wrestling with all of this trauma that we that we've gone, that we've gone through? I don't know. I, I, again, though, part of me, I, I wonder if that's still something we're going to see. Um, because I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure it's necessarily something that's going to keep audiences away. Um, but I do think that maybe it's something that artists at this point in time are, are needing to, to think about and, and figure out. Um, one of the, one of the things I'll, I'll just point to, uh, point to, um, uh, Adriana, one of the, one of the shows that I saw, one of the best theatrical experiences that I've seen in the last few years was, um, was, uh, um, Aldrich's, um, uh, double header last, when was it, was it, was it the fall or, or, um, was it the fall where he did the HP Lovecraft and the 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 Poe the the um uh the uh the Kafka piece? It was like the double header, and it's uh, coming back this April. And the thing is, it's so it was just it was just Eric on stage, like him on stage with with these puppets, um, doing a magic magic shows and 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 it was great. And the thing was, I think the thing that so touched me about it is, I mean, both shows were dealing with some apocalyptic themes some identity like it like he there was a lovely there's a love there was a lovely comment that he made about how one show was dealing with sort of lockdown and the other was like the anxiety of going out in the world but at the same time i also looked at that that production as a as a model of something that might work which was two essentially one act shows that were paired with each other and i thought well what a great idea for for fringe artists, you know, who generally don't have a lot of money to try, to try shit out, to try something that, that, you know, like it, the, to, to not, to see if it will work, to see if it won't work. And it's actually a model that 
I've heard a lot of people talk about, but I've never actually seen it done in practice. And I think it's something maybe I, like I would like to see it done more often, right? Like a couple of companies get together and say, we're going to take out, you know, this space because we can't afford it on our own. And we're going to like split, split, you know, one half of the evening will be this show and the other half of the evening will be this show. And this is kind of how we can help each other to kind of earn audiences. And I recall like when, when Aaron and I went to see that, that show at, at Red Sandcastle, it was packed. It was packed. There was tons of people there. So it was an, I'll say it was a really lovely way to kind of return, get back to the theater because it actually gave me a little bit of hope. And I, I saw that just before the summer, I think, um, if I'm remembering correctly, God, I can't. Yeah. Yeah, it was. It must have been before the summer. And I turned to Aaron and I went, this is how we should be doing theater in Hamilton. And then I said, we need to, we need to like book, book space with these people. <laughs> yeah, you do. This warms my heart so much. And you know what is really great, Stephen, is that people are actually doing that. It must be a collect collective unconsciousness because we actually have a booking opening tomorrow and it's just a women's solo, like one act play festival that they've all come together to be like, let's rent the sandcastle because we need to have these stories out of our bodies. And how can we do it in an economical way? Then there is another person who actually, um, it's a collective where it's one performer doing three pieces. So it keeps it keeps the economy part of it, but the stories are coming. So if there's three playwrights and one person, um, that's Perry Repost um, uh, Productions uh, doing Dress as People. And then there's the Women's Play Festival. So I feel like artists are always going to do this. And that's why I love us is that, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. And then there's also places like Sandcastle, right, that that we want indie theater to thrive and survive because the stories will out. Um, and and it's really hard to make theater um, like outdoor festivals in the winter. Tried it once at City of Toronto, I think, in, in 2016. It was a terrible idea. I was at Fort York and it was so cold. Nobody enjoyed it. Um, don't recommend it. So the idea of collaboration, I think, is going to be like what Stephen's saying here. I think that's going to be the soup du jour, but that du jour is going to be for possibly sometime um, to just to really just again, maybe hopefully this is this is a boost to really strengthening community and seeing how we can collaborate between other like-minded individuals. I know that we have a call for artists on Sandcastle. We want to help people who are specifically making like the weird and unusual um in, in because again like um everybody has their mandate and we're gonna try and eke out the the weirdos uh we love you please come talk to us and uh we'll try to make it happen as best we can as long as we can keep the lights on and i think that that might be something going forward this, this is maybe going back a little bit but um i think if we are trying to guess where things are headed now uh, we can look back to the 1930s because we are in a disturbingly similar place in a lot of ways. There's war happening elsewhere that is always sort of hinting that maybe we're going to get pulled into. Uh, everyone is poor. People are angry. There is lots of people uh, moving about, both with, with immigration and people just coming to or leaving cities. If, if you look at what entertainment was popular then, you've got the big cheesy musicals. Um, Shirley Temple was huge because she was just a cute little, oh, you know, there's there's nothing to not like. She's adorable and she'll just, she wouldn't be popular at a happy time. It would be sickening. Um, and then also some really dark um, artsy and then into the 40s, getting into the film noir kind of stuff. And I think that's where the, uh, what this is, us, is that what it is called? The, the fungus show, that sort of thing uh, comes in is we either want a happy distraction or we get kind of masochistic and are like, yeah, show me all these awful things. But there's always a separation. And I think that's what's key. Um, if you are currently depressed because you're isolated and poor and worried about sickness and war, you probably don't want to go and watch a play about someone who's isolated, poor and worried about sickness and war. It's too, it's too close. But if you have something where people are turning to zombies, there's that separation. If you do a uh, period production, and they did that in the 30s too, uh, well into the 40s especially, they'd have movies that were about that were about World War II, always set in World War One. There's there's no question. You look at um, 
mash. Of course, it's about the Vietnam War, but it's not. It's about the Korean War, right? There has to be some kind of separation there so that you can go in and feel it, but still be able to take a step back and be like, okay, this is not what's happening to me. Uh, my company just does period productions. And so that's something um, we're always looking at is how can it be something that's relevant now, but also could have happened a long time ago um, and seem to have had success with that. We just did a production of The Birds. Um, that was like a new thing inspired by Hitchcock's uh, The Birds. Um, and so it was set in the 60s and uh, it's uh, these people stuck in a, um, a small cottage just over like a 24-hour period. But it had all the stuff about, you know, isolation and someone who was drinking too much and the paranoia and relationships and everything. Um, but it it wasn't uh, stressful or exhausting because there was a potential of maybe some kind of weird verging on supernatural element with the birds and the the um, the fact that it set in the past. So I didn't have any audience members say anything about like, oh, it was stressful or it was like, you know, they just found it enjoyable because you you have that separation to keep yourself sane and to be able to say after like, okay, now it's done and turn it off. Um, and I think that's the sort of thing. And I suspect that's why part of why the, the puppet shows also do really well. You can have a puppet show about any horrific thing and it's it's puppets. Um, you know, Avenue Q now is, is very dated and uh, no longer seems edgy so much as borderline offensive. But when it came out, it was it was great because if you just had actors saying that, people would have been boycotting it. But, oh, no, it's a it's a puppet singing about being racist. It's kind of funny. And you're like, hey, well, I don't have to take it so seriously. Um, you know, the adult cartoons you see on TV, The Simpsons has always been able to say edgier things than um, what like a, a live action sitcom could do. So I think if we are looking to keep doing stories about serious topics, we need to think of how we can have that separation, whether it's something ridiculous and it's puppets or musical or it's just at a distance because of time or something supernatural. We need to give people a break. And um, even if it's tempting to go on stage and sort of work through your traumas, um, no one wants to watch your therapy session. And its uh, I don't think it's healthy for either side. So finding a way to have that inform what you do instead of just be, I'm going to lay myself bare on stage, I think will help bring in audiences. So according to Emily, everybody needs to see an Eldridge Theater show. Just say thank you. <laughs> thank you, Emily. That's yeah, good. yeah. Uh, Laura, go ahead. Thanks. I'd like to go a little rogue, if I may, because Phil, when you first posed this question about the disappearing audience, it it's it um it jogged my memory of something I've been perc percolating on for a little while, which is I don't think that us as artists, Canadian artists, are particularly good audience members. I think something I look to America for so so rarely, but America is obsessed with itself. They have talk show after talk show after talk show to interview each other about how amazing they each are for the doing the same thing we're doing over here. But we have this complex of well, we got to get out. I have to be good to get out. And in order to get out, it means you have to be best. You have to be doing. You have to be always on top. You have to be searching for that uh, the evidence to get your A1. You have to be, you're, you're, we're working towards a goal that doesn't look back and say, hey, I'm actually hurting myself because I'm stifling my own industry in the pursuit to get out of it. And I think a couple of years ago, I had a, a, just a, an overwhelming feeling to myself like, nobody's coming to the show, but did I go? How many shows did I go to? I'm so focused as an artist with no money and no time on what am I doing? What's my next step? What am I producing? What am I producing? How can I get them to come to my show? And it's like, I'm not, I wasn't being a good audience because I wasn't going to their show and nobody was going to each other's shows. And I caught myself feeling offended at about people not coming to my first 
first solo production or my the first musical or whatever the thing I was doing. And I was like, I can't believe I can't believe my friends and contemporaries are here. And then I thought, well, I better fix the problem. I better be part of that solution if I'm going to start assigning blame to other people. And I think one of the aspects of growing the audience is reframing ourselves to being obsessed with each other. Find local heroes. Get Become obsessed with what we're doing here. Find the talented people you really like. Pick them up out of that crowd. Create something with them. Be the industry that you wanted to escape to. We've got it. We have the talent. We have the venues. We have human beings. Toronto's huge. It's it's multicultural. It's exciting. It's alive. It's cold, but it, it bring them inside. We we have the ability, but there's just for so long been this road to get good enough in Canada to get out of here, and it and it just self perpetuates this this lack of attention from artists towards other artists. And and even in this discussion so far, we've been talking about audiences, audiences, audiences. We haven't even talked about the artists in the audience. And that in and of itself is kind of just proves that we're like, they're not coming. They don't have any money. They don't have any times. They don't care. Like it almost is like obvious that we wouldn't talk about ourselves as artists going. It's different, I think. Um, producers will go see it. it but I think on the ground level, just as an an artist myself, it's like I look around and I think we're all we're all on stage and none of us are in the audience. I know that we're at our hour mark and I I, I know that we're going to have to to go in in a little bit. But I wanted to go a little bit rogue with you, Laura. Um, and what I want to say in response to that is, yes, it's great. It's great to have. Uh, other artists in the audience. But if our target audience is artists, then we have no real audience. Um, we should, like, we need audio people who are not our fellow audi- artists in the audience. Otherwise, I wonder if we are at all relevant. So uh, while it's great to have our fellow artists support and we should support our fellow artists 100%, um, I cannot, I don't, we shouldn't be targeting, like, how to say it, the, our fellow artists are not necessarily our target audience, um, because that is, that's just a Ouroboros, that's the snake eating its own tail, is, as far as the art goes. Thanks, sorry, just an opportunity to respond and, and clarify, you're totally right, because the, I, even when I'm talking to my friends about my solo show, it's like, I don't want you to come to this show as a favor to me or as an industry obligation or as a, a not to be a hypocrite. You're totally right. The 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 success of the, the industry depends on strangers wanting to come see your work. And I, I totally agree with you. I just I wanted to highlight one aspect of of how if art, artists aren't the audience, then the then it doesn't perpetuate itself properly. Um, but you're totally right. It's the, we we need, we can't be, we can't be a room of like circling around each other. Like you were great, watch me. You were great, watch me again. Yeah. You're, yeah. you're so right. Absolutely. This is such a, a big topic. Um, and we are uh, a group of people who are in the uh, greater Toronto area. And uh, it's, it's something that affects uh, all over Canada. And I'm, I, I, I'm curious, and hopefully I'll be able to have similar conversations with other artists in different parts of Canada to find out what, what the scene is like there. I think that, that because it's a complicated uh, question, there's no simple answer, but I think maybe we've gotten at a couple of things and maybe uh, number one is programming and number two is advertising somehow. Um, that's a bigger question that we can't really address here. Um, but, uh, I think there are solutions, um, that they're just going to take time to find. Thank you all for joining me uh, tonight. I really appreciate uh, your time. This has been an episode of Stageworthy. Stageworthy is produced, hosted, and edited by Phil Rickaby. That's me. If you enjoyed this podcast and you listen on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can leave a five-star rating. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, you can also leave a review. 
Those reviews and ratings help new people find the show. If you want to keep up with what's going on with Stageworthy and my other projects, you can subscribe to my newsletter by going to philrickaby.com slash subscribe. And remember, if you want to leave a tip, you'll find a link to the virtual tip jar in the show notes or on the website. You can find Stageworthy on Twitter and Instagram at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website with the complete archive of all episodes at stageworthy.ca. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. And as I mentioned, my website is philrickaby.com. See you next week for another episode of Stageworthy. Worthy.